All right, all right, all right. Welcome to a new episode of Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Sam Moyne and I, David Schlegart, talk about legal theory um, and whatever else is on our mind. Uh, and we bring in uh, guests to uh, talk with us. So who do we have with us today, Sam? Uh, David, today we're talking with Kate Andreas and Ben Sachs, uh, who are both great uh, labor law uh, theorists about uh, organization and what uh, the state should do to uh, uh, help uh, 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 working class people in particular get together and exert more power. Yeah, it's a really fascinating discussion springing from their recent Yale Law Journal piece, um, uh, and uh, they're great. So uh, let's get to it. Welcome to the labor law edition of Digging a Hole. Uh, we have uh, the most fantastic guests imaginable, Kate Andreas, who's professor of law at the University of Michigan, and my uh, old colleague, Benjamin Sachs, Kestenbaum Professor of Labor and Industry at Harvard Law School. And we're going to mainly talk about their a wonderful recent Yale Law Journal paper, which is entitled Constructing Countervailing Power Law and Organizing in an Era of Political uh, inequality. So welcome, Kate and Ben. Thanks. Great to be here. So the, the paper begins before it reaches its solution by sketching a problem and some limits of other solutions uh, to kind of make room for your intervention. So what is the problem that you think we ought to be facing along with, you know, lots of other progressives out there? Um, the, the problem is uh, broadly defined as political inequality, um, by which we mean um, the uh, lack of responsiveness, the seeming lack of responsiveness of government policy to the views of uh, low and middle income people. Um, so it appears uh, increasingly the case that the government responds uh, government policy responds to the preferences of those in the very upper income brackets of the country, um, and not as much, if at all, uh, to the to the lower income brackets. Now, this is not to say that uh, poor and middle uh, income people never see the government policy that they want. That does happen, um, but it seems to happen almost by coincidence. That is when their views align with the views of the wealthy. Can I ask a quick question about that? What is your, how much are you relying on Gillens and Page? There's obviously been a big scholarly response to Gillens and Page that this is the finding you're describing. And it's been, let's just say it hasn't been smooth sailing for their finding. Um, uh, so like, how much are you relying on that one social scientific finding about the, the finding in the paper is that the government doesn't ever listen to the poor, even Democrats. Um, uh, but there's been some substantial pushback. So how much are you relying on that social scientific finding? Um, Kay, you want to go? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I th I think that um, we're relying on that finding in part, although their finding really isn't that the government doesn't ever listen to the poor, right? The government, the finding is that when poor people's views diverge from those of the wealthy, government is far more responsive to wealthy people's views. Um, and that that also changes, though, when the poor and working class people are organized. So that kind of comes to the argument of our paper. But um, their, their research is 
of a piece with a vast amount of research about the role of campaign finance, um, the role of money in politics, the role of lobbying in the administrative state. So it's not just Gillens and Page, it's people like Bartels and Hacker and Pearson. And there's just a vast amount of research that shows, you know, not conclusively, not without any, you know, questions, but shows pretty overwhelmingly that wealthy people and wealthy corporations exercise a disproportionate amount of power in the political system. And that also aligns with most people's own observations and sort of, you know, uh, experiences. So, you know, I, 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 I'm with you that, you know, we may need social science to master the obvious and convince David, but, you know, maybe we don't. So you, 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 you mentioned a range of solutions and Kate uh, just, you know, kind of advertised the, 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 the go-to, which has to do with campaign finance. And uh, it's not like you, you know, decry other solutions, but you offer one that you think has been neglected. So what is it? And, you know, why, why do you, why do you think um, you're well positioned to kind of theorize about it on the basis of your uh, expertise as labor law thinkers? Yeah, I think that's that. I, I like that question because it, it's important to say that this we're we're not uh, we don't mean to disparage of uh, campaign finance uh, limitations or uh, the importance of voting rights. Those are all uh, important tools in the toolbox. Um, they just haven't worked, <laughs> um, and and they haven't worked for various reasons. Um, you know, part of the problem with campaign finance reform is the Supreme Court's, uh, you know, First Amendment limitations on the uh, capacity of it to work. Part of it is the hydraulic power of money to find alternative channels. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the additional solution that we uh, point to is not taking money out of the process but helping lower and middle income people, enabling them to build countervailing power through uh, organizing. Um, and so there, there is an empirical, uh, a kind of a rich empirical basis for the claim before we get to the theoretical basis for it. And, and um, you know, going back to the, to the Bartles uh, and Gillen's uh, stuff, um, the exception that they show or that they find to the general uh, rule that um, uh, government policy is not responsive to the low and middle income brackets is when uh, the when the arrangement or, or arrangement of um, collective actors of uh, is is such that um, low and middle income people have a collective voice in policy, um, then government does seem to be more responsive. Uh, to their views. And the other basis for this is just the history of, of unions and the labor movement and, and labor law, uh, where when unions were active and strong, uh, they were able to provide a viable political voice for the working class. Um, that was not always a progressive voice. Um, often it was, but not always, but it was an effective voice. Um, and so from the perspective of political equality of, of countervailing voices, uh, it does appear that that organization, political organization, uh, collective uh, political voice is a uh, important um, source of uh, political power for, for lower and middle income people. 
So, so the message I got out of it just at, at, at a kind of abstract level is that the law should facilitate the independent organization of, of civil society, um, which is a fantastic, you know, idea. Um, we want to get into, you know, some challenges to it, but Kate, could you maybe um, lay out as a, a brief laundry list? What are some of the specific ways you propose um, to kind of, you know, um, institutionalize this general idea? I mean, what are the kind of proposals that um, would would give this some kind of specificity? Yeah, so I think um, I'd be happy to do that. I think maybe just as a as a precursor to that, I think um, it's important to point out that we are actually taking the position that the law already um, facilitates organization. It does so much more effectively for wealthy people, for corporations. So the argument is that law already helps shape the extent of organization. And we're arguing it should make different choices in order to facilitate more power among working class people and poor people. Um, and what we, what we do is we look at the history and experience of labor law, both its successes and its failures, and also the really rich liter literature on social movements, particularly in sociology, but also in history, to see, you know, what are some of the factors that help social movement organizations of poor and working people flourish? Um, some of those sort of factors have really nothing to do with law. Right. So there's a lot of literature that suggests that when, you know, certain big historical or economic changes occur that can help organizations thrive or that, you know, particularly effective leaders can help organizations thrive. And law doesn't really affect that, those things. But law does affect a lot of other um, factors that help organizations thrive. And so we offer so drawing from labor law and drawing from the sociology literature and the social science literature. Um, we we offer a number of ways that law could intervene to help these organizations uh, thrive. And those include um, things like helping facilitate resource aggregation. So money and other resources that organizations need to be success, to be successful. A second is enabling organizers access to talk to people and organize um, them effectively and particularly to enable them free spaces that are um, where organizing can occur sort of outside of authoritarian um, control. Um, another element is protecting against retaliation um, and um, uh, so that people can organize free from, you know, fear of being uh, punished as a result. Um, another is um, enabling uh, material gain. So actually enabling, uh, for example, worker, workers to bargain with their employers, but also tenants to bargain with their um, uh, landlords so that they can make direct change, that, so that their organizations are effective at making immediate changes in their lives, as well as building broader political power. Um, another is protecting um, concerted action so that because there's a lot of evidence that suggests that uh, poor people's organizations are more successful when they um, have uh, ability to cause sometimes disruption when it's necessary. Um, ben, I'm probably forgetting a few. I don't have the list in front of me. No, that that's a that's a that's a great summary. I mean, I, I let me let me point to just um, two that are two factors that are kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum. One, um, kind of totally mundane. Um, but also, in our estimation, incredibly important, and that is um, a, a mechanism for financing 
uh, the growth of these organizations. So um, in the history of, the, of, of labor law and the labor movement, the ability um, and, and social movements generally, to be honest, the ability of organizations to have a, um, a viable mechanism for funding uh, has been critical. And, and labor law has facilitated this for unions through the dues checkoff um, uh, mechanism. That is um, uh, allowing workers to use the employer's payroll system essentially as a, a, a funding mechanism. Um, and so we, we advocate that, uh, you know, similar kinds of, of mechanisms be available to tenants, uh, to, to debtors, uh, and, and, and the like. Um, at, at, an, at the kind of opposite end of the spectrum from mundane to um, abstract or theoretical, I guess, um, is this idea, I, th I think um, often maligned, but um, uh, uh, nonetheless important of framing. And that is the, the way that law can serve as a frame, a collective action frame um, for around which people can organize. Um, and it seems that labor law, again, has been an important frame, um, a symbolic uh, frame for uh, workers uh, who have, have sought to organize. Um, I, I, so, you know, in concrete terms, what we recommend is that the law explicitly provide organizing rights to tenants, um, to debtors, to, to in addition to workers. Um, and um, it, th this this bit has been on my mind recently um, with uh, the Bessemer uh, Amazon campaign and the the seeming um, importance of President Biden's intervention uh, there. Uh, he, for listeners who don't know, put out a tweet and a video in which he he you know stressed that the federal government's position, that is to say, the legal position in the United States is in favor of facilitating unionization, that workers have a right to unionize, that he believes in that right. Um, and this, you know, we don't know yet, but this seems to have inspired um, some groundswell of support. It, it, it has echoes of the 1930s uh, when the National Labor Relations Act was first enacted um, and um, the kind of symbolic value, the framing value that th that law had for organizers then. Um, uh, the CIO sort of famously used uh, the slogan, FDR wants you to join a union. Um, as a, as an organizing tool, um, so um, the, you know, the, 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 I guess this is a long way of, of saying there are very different things that the law can do to facilitate organizing, all the way from providing a dues checkoff to providing a symbolic apparatus or a symbolic frame uh, around which uh, people can organize. So I have one quick clarifying question that I just didn't understand from the paper, which was, do, are you, do you think there should be a general purpose organizing statute or issue-specific organizing statute? We have a National Labor Relations Act, not a Steelworkers Act, um, uh, at least today. Um, and so do you think there should be a general purpose one, or do you think it is issue-specific we should do it? Because you could imagine the politics and, and, and normative stuff being quite different under either of those ideas. I, I, I mean, the, the way we've thought about it is, um, it's interesting, we, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about whether we should entertain the idea of a, uh, um, a general, I guess what you would call a general right to organize. Um, 
Yeah. And um, we decided that we, our focus would be on um, what you're calling context specific um, uh, organizing rights. Um, that that was a decision not that um, uh, only context specific would work, um, but that in the history of, of organizing, um, the context specific that is within particular structures of power relations and resource allocation, um, that's where organizing tends to take place uh, and where we felt like law could do the most to facilitate um, successful organizing. Um, but, you know, there could be another paper uh, that, that took up the question of, you know, a general right to, to, to organize. It, it's harder to conceive of who, who you would um, possess rights against, um, you know, in, in, and maybe this is we're a little blinkered by our experience in, in the labor context. But um, we thought that it was it was it was a defensible approach. Kate, do you want to add to that? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think we're not rejecting the idea that there might be ways for law to encourage sort of a broad-based political movement among all poor people um, or, you know, sort of a different um, alignment of political parties that better um, better represent the, the interests of low- and middle-income people, but that um, there's there's certainly um, a lot of research that suggests that organizing tends to occur among exists, functions well within existing relationships, both um, sort of existing relationships among the people who are organizing, but also within power relationships. Um, and, and also that there are some, you know, things that are specific on in different contexts that law might think differently about depending on the context. So the kinds of interventions might vary when you're thinking about organizing in the housing context versus organizing in the debtor context versus organizing in the welfare beneficiary context. So I, I really appreciated earlier, Kate, that you you, you remarked that it's not as if the state is absent. Uh, you know, the state, to some impressive ex extent, is owned and operated by the rich uh, in, in a kind of conspiracy to to keep the a poor and middle income people a, away from effective power. Um, but you know, for that very reason, this challenge was kind of haunting my mind through the paper, and you finally reach it in the conclusion. Um, it, you, you cite a different paper, but it 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 it's a, the challenge that we we call the the inside outside objection, which is that if the problem is correctly sketched, the solution is not available, and somehow is just would have to come as kind of a Deus ex machina that the the the, the formulation of the problem actually rules out. Um, and so why why doesn't that objection have your your proposal dead to rights? Because I want I mean, I'm for it, obviously. Yeah. So, I mean, look, anything that kind of diagnoses the problem as being um, that wealthy people control the levers of political power that then has as its solution um, something that changes how political power is distributed through the using the state, uh, um, whether that's, you know, our proposal or many others that sort of aim at redistributing both um, both uh, political power and um, and money, right, uh, faces that, that challenge. Um, and so it, I think, I mean, one thing is that certainly the idea that um, because that would sort of suggest that any 
progressive change or redistributive change is impossible. Um, and I'm not willing to accept that uh, that uh, conclusion or that it isn't worthy of, of exploration. But, but we also think that there are actually a, a number of really concrete reasons why um, the proposals that we're urging actually are feasible and politically attainable. Um, given in certain circumstances, right? And that is that although elites exercise outsized power in politics, um, the influence isn't absolute. And in fact, it can be overcome, particularly when issues become salient um, or when elites are divided. And actually we've seen that even just in recent months with the sort of massive redistribution um, in the recent uh, COVID relief bill, um, as well as, for example, the sort of changing politics around the minimum wage, right? Um, both the, uh, the po politics shift, right? And when issues become salient or when elites are divided, there's the opportunity for working people, working class people to make, um, make uh, gains. Also, we really think it's important to um, think about the way that federalism offers openings for change. Um, there is already local experimentation um, in certain in progressive jurisdictions, both at the city level and at the state level around some of the proposals that we're talking about. And when, um, when those proposals are won at a local or state level, it both shows their feasibility um, at the national level or in other states. And it also enables those the organizations that are gaining power in those locations to um, then assist in other areas to sort of export the gains that are one in one locality to another. Um, so those I think are the two main ways in which um, the, the kind of inside outside problem that you identify can be overcome. So I wanna push in a slightly different direction, which is to what extent can you be sure your groups, the groups that you're facilitating will act in the public interest, however defined? Um, so like, it, I mean, you focus a lot on the effect on national politics or on tax rates or kind of equality between the rich and poor, but these will also be interest groups with a particular uh, focus that is not necessary, with whose preferences will not necessarily be correlated with the interests of either the broader society, public interest, however you want to define that, or even those of the less fortunate. So like, a traditional worry with labor unions is that they care a lot about um, outsized monopoly profits because then they can negotiate over those monopoly profits. And so uh, like a, an oligopoly in car, the car industry was really good for the UAW um, because they could then negotiate for it. And then as things got more competitive, it, things got harder. Uh, so their interest in antitrust. Um, similarly, like they like public subsidies for their industries and kind of all the ordinary ways that anyone would like public subsidies for their industry. Because again, it creates more surplus that can then be negotiated over. To what extent are you worried that these groups will not, the groups facilitate, again, whatever the issue area, will not particularly correlate with the interests of the public interest? Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to where we started. Like our, our, the problem we're trying to solve for is uh, political inequality and the, and the lack of responsiveness to these low and middle income groups. And that so that's the problem that we seek to address. Um, and we, we think that if if uh, if our reforms were enacted, that low and middle income groups would have more political power uh, and that that would be good for democracy, whether how how that would be exercised is is a really important question and but is a is a bit orthogonal to the to to the proposal and and isn't it more like a side effect right so like if like the same way that we could think that like in a kind of minker olson wealth and poverty of nations that we get like a condensation a group of interest groups developing over time that you're basically encouraging the creation of interest groups to create balance between those interest groups but you're also creating kind of more rent seekers in the broader economy in the public choicey sort of way 
I guess going back to the union example, um, unions have been an important political voice for low and middle income people. The, the valence of the political positions that unions have advanced, the relationship to what, you, what might be thought of as a broader political, a public interest, strikes us as a different set of questions. Um, and and our, our ambition, our aspiration is to equip low and middle income groups with political power they need to countervail uh, the the political influence of the wealthy. Um, there 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 are a lot of questions that that we don't answer, but that's the one that we try to. I don't know, Kate, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of moving outside our paper a bit, but I guess, um, David, in response to your question, I mean, it seems like implicit in your question is the idea that technocrats um, or experts are sort of best able to determine the public interest and that there's a danger in kind of in empowering sort of ordinary people to have a real voice in, in defining the public interest. And I think we're coming at this from a sort of different, you know, normative um perspective where we actually think like the public interest will be better um, developed, will we come up with better policy if working class people and poor people are not kind of shut out of that process. And it is true, right, what you say, right, which is that when you have organized interests, they don't always um, advocate for um, uh, what you might deem to be the best policy outcomes, right? And they also sometimes create like, you know, um, uh, a problem of sort of advocating for those who who have power at the expense of those who don't, right? Which would be like the, what you were suggesting with labor unions, or you can imagine having some of those concerns about organized tenants, right? Um, but I think that I think there the response is twofold. I mean, one is that the the idea behind the paper is kind of enabling widespread mass mobilization and organization among these groups, not kind of empowering just sort of small particular groups, right, which already are fairly well organized. Um, and then the second is that um, it's true, there are sometimes downsides, right, and costs to having um, to having groups be organized, have an organized voice in the political process. And I think we're ultimately willing to accept those costs and those downsides. So that's where I wanted to push you. I mean, it's really good because that, that kind of got where I was going in the next week. So the, um, the extent which, which these groups, you're focused on uh, issue specific, which kind of is not a general purpose. This is one of the reasons I asked you about the general purpose versus specific, because that does create inside-outside conflicts as opposed to other strategies, which theoretically are mass in nature. And so like you have um, uh, like some con potential conflicts between your organized groups, and it's also true for labor unions, and other groups of, of, of the politically disempowered. So there's obviously a very complicated history between labor unions and immigration and immigrants generally, because there's a, you know, they increase the labor supply in kind of traditional sorts of ways, which may make um, labor unions less powerful. There's a complex, long, long running politics there. Um, and so I, you could imagine this in the tenant context also. So like tenants who win rent, rent control often are not in favor of new supply of housing, right? So like that's a, a normal, a completely normal part of politics. Um, a question is that given that you're focused on specific areas, um, how worried are you or what, maybe I guess it differently, what tools could you create or think about in terms of the way in which you'd create these organizing laws to make it more likely that the these groups uh, speak to the better angels of our nature or to the broader interests of working or politically displaced people as opposed to their narrow sectoral interest? 
Yeah, I mean, so um, at at the at one level, uh, I think what we would say is um, the more successful um, the proposals are, the broader uh, they will be, the, and and the more encompassing the organizations will will become. Um, the, the we have a I can't remember if it's a footnote or or in the text now. Um, we have a we have a you raised the concern about immigration policy, which which um, to broaden it out a bit. Um, our worry is about making sure that these groups don't act in a discriminatory way, um, and and we uh, you know we think that there are. Um, mechanisms for for policing the um, equity and inclusiveness of the organizations that we uh, we hope to to enable, um, and and those seem like important uh, measures to to enact on top of 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 the the basic proposal, which is to facilitate to facilitate their growth. I think the other thing is that um, a number of the parts of labor law that I think have encouraged the um, more inward looking and less sort of expansive social movement nature of some unions are not things that are part of our proposal. So just to give you some examples there, you know, um, currently labor law prohibits workers from engaging in secondary boycotts. It actually prohibits workers from joining with one another sort of in solidarity across employers. Um, that's not something that we're recommending the um, be incorporated in any kind of general law of organizing. And in fact, that's something that we actually um, uh, urge against. Um, another example would be labor law prohibits um, workers from, or sorry, it doesn't prohibit workers from raising a certain subjects, but it, it doesn't require employers to bargain about um, certain subjects that are considered non-mandatory, that are considered permissive, that are often kind of in the public interest. Um, so um, work, uh, employers are required to bargain about terms of and conditions of work, but aren't required um, to bargain about sort of general social welfare goods um, and you know, the, the, what we're what we're urging doesn't kind of set up that same bifurcation between kind of inward looking um, goods and sort of more um, external goods. And then I think the other thing is that it's fundamentally what we're urging is really a pluralistic system that enables, you know, kind of broad spread, widespread organizing and not um, kind of shop by shop um, uh Organizing along the some of the more traditional NLRA approaches. Yeah, just just to highlight that last point, that and and goes back to what I was um, aiming to say about the breadth of the success of the of the of the project. Um, you know, American labor law has been organized at the around uh, enterprise or workplace level bargaining, which I think accentuates some of the the, the issues, David, that you raise. Um, and, um, you know, in, in other work that Kate and I are, are involved in, we're both um, very interested in pushing uh, labor law in the direction of sectoral bargaining. Um, so and that as you move the level of, of organization and bargaining up, um, the, the potential for exclusion goes down um, and, and the, the, the necessity of inclusion uh, increases. And so in, in the labor law context, um, you know, if, if an entire sector uh, is organized, there's there's less of an inside outside um, issue of the kind that you that you point to. And so um, part of our of our uh, our work in labor law in particular, but also in this paper, as, as Kate was saying, is 
is is is structuring the bargaining in a more sectoral uh, at a more sectoral level and a less uh, enterprise uh, uh, system. That makes a lot of sense in terms. Actually, it's also a great transition to a question I want to ask, um, which is. Is about the kind of opportunities and limits to the basic gambit of the paper, at least as I understand it, which is to, let's say, trade on your expertise as labor law scholars to think about organization in general, um, abstracting or generalizing from the experience of, of, of labor organizing and the law governing it uh, for thinking about the more general problem. So just to reassure me, I think you already did a little bit in talking about, you know, the move to sectoral bargaining that um, that's a mis- that's not a mistake. Uh, just on, on the following grounds, you know, you had this massive ba- breakthrough because there was an external shock from outside the system in in the 1930s that allowed the Wagner Act, you know, that I know Kate's a a Fair Labor Standards Act stand as well. Uh, And then we've been living with the decomposition of that regime since. And uh, we're in a situation where the, let's call it Fordist or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, moment of political economy no longer obtains. Uh, labor law, you know, maybe hasn't caught up to uh, a new world of, you know, care work, service work, rec- the need to recognize, you know, female labor since, you know, the, that old breakthrough was centered around the white male laborer. Uh, and, of course, the, the, the racialization that always existed of the, the lower classes and working classes, but that you and your paper are, are very much interested in in putting at the center of the frame. So given all that, how, how do we think about these proposals as responding to the transformations in political economy, the way work is organized, and the sheer difficulty uh, uh, of organization that, you know, the old unionization campaigns centered on, you know, industrial factories didn't face? That's a totally fair question, <laughs> and and one we uh, we tried to uh, keep pretty front and center as we as we worked on the project. Um, so so let me just start by acknowledging what you've said, and um, that is uh, and 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 as Kate and I have both spent uh, you know ten plus years writing about labor law is is in part a failed regime, um, and uh, I think Kate said this earlier. Um, our intention is to learn both from the successes, but also the failures of labor law. Um, that includes some of the things you've you've pointed out. Um, in, 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 um, not not the least of which is labor. The, the fact that baked into the labor law system we had is a, a system of racial and gender exclusions that were part of the original political trade. That got this law enacted, and um, so the 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 sort of the, the problems of exclusion have to be addressed with uh, a more inclusive uh, system. It, it you know it includes the the problems with workplace uh, or enterprise level bargaining, um, and the the so the the list goes on uh, with the failures uh, of the labor law system. Um, what we, what I think, what we tried to do um, was to look at what worked um, in in the law, and by what worked, meaning what 
facilitated organizing um, and sort of stripped down uh, the, the legal regime to what actually puts put working people and puts working people in a position to organize for collective power. And we, we, we took that um, history and knowledge and um, mixed it up with the literature on social movements, which takes a sort of broader based, uh, uh, has a broader based analysis of what uh, works to facilitate organizing um, and tried to distill, you know, this set of factors. Um, uh, and you know, that, that was the exercise. Um, and it was, it was very much intended to be one, um, that was cognizant of the deep problems with American labor law and not, um, you know, let's take the Wagner act and export it to the tenant context. And the other thing I would just add to that is in terms of our writing process. So we had both had this idea and sort of gestured to it in past papers and then had talked about sort of exploring it more deeply together. Um, and when we started researching, we did not actually start with the NLRA as our model. Like we really went and kind of read with a fresh with fresh eyes, right? The sociology literature and some of the history on other social movements. So movement organizing among homeless people, organizing among tenants unions, farmers unions, um, welfare rights organizing, um, the, organizing in the civil rights movement and saw these you know, themes come up over and over about the importance of framing, the importance of uh, free spaces in which to organize, the critical importance of resources, the importance of being able to engage in effective concerted action and disruption. Um, and so, um, it turned out there ended up being quite a bit of overlap with some of the more positive elements of the NLRA, but what we're arguing for also really departs fundamentally um, in many ways from how the NLRA is currently structured and in, in the ways that Ben just suggested. So I, I want to um, now take you kind of beyond the boundaries of the paper, uh, just because I'm you know curious um, what you'll say Um the papers, as I said, about the you know organization of civil society outside the state, and of course that requires the state to to shift its legal regime. Um, but I want to ask where parties, where should parties be thought of in this story? Because obviously, in the '30s, there was a working class party, at least to some extent, um, and. Uh, that I, I'm, I'll just say I'm very influenced by recent accounts of the 2016 and 2020 elections that are telling a story about a second gilded age in which we're living, in which the kind of fundamental phenomenon is class dealignment, increasing class dealignment, where um, there are there's there are cross class coalitions in each party that are at, at are deadlocked. And, and, and so I'm wondering, insofar as to get out, out either, you know, to solve the inside-outside problem, you'd need movements to influence parties or a party to, um, to change the workings of state power. Could, could you just reflect on if, whether that's the real challenge to somehow, you know, think about a realignment moment in, in which this, you know, organizing uh, you know, would would figure or to which it might lead. The Republican Party is trying to capture the some version of the working class vote. Um, it seems to me that there's nothing new in what they're actually doing. 
Um, they did that already in the Reagan revolution. And, and, yeah. and it's, it's, it, we're still dealing with this strategy. Point is, like, it worked. <laughs> um, so, right. So, so um, he, he, yes. So, and, and, and you know, form of, top of mind for me on this dynamic is the Marco Rubio op-ed in, in USA Today, which just, I mean, just as a, a piece of, cultural political history is fascinating. I mean, he, the argument he made, he, so he sort of comes out in favor of the workers uh, organizing the union at Amazon, but um, as a punishment for Amazon, uh, the union is sort of a a deserving punishment for Amazon because Amazon is woke um, and has um, abandoned what Rubio calls working class values. So, Right on the surface there, you see the kind of values um, move and there's nothing in the op-ed about actual working conditions at Amazon or the economic interests or needs of the Amazon workers. So um, uh, a familiar story, and Sam, as you say, um, with some uh, unfortunate success in history. Um, the The other side of this is um, the PRO Act, which is has passed in the House, which would um, amount to the most significant reform of labor law in decades, um, doesn't go far enough, in my opinion, doesn't, do, doesn't move us in the direction of sectoral bargaining, which is, I think, key. Um, but the question, again, will be, um, does the Democratic Party... Uh, um, do what is required to do to enact labor law reform. Um, it has has failed over and over again to do that. Um, and, you know, usually because of the filibuster. Uh, and I think that's likely what we'll see again. And so there's, there's no labor party. Um, anyway, that's not that's not a totally coherent answer to your to your question, but some reflections on current state of affairs. Anyway, no, it restates it. So I just I, I, I think we need to have for future discussions on this problem. Yeah, I'll give I'll add to that. I mean, first of all, I think it's absolutely true that this is not a new problem, um, and that you know you mentioned the 1980s. You could go back to the 1930s and the exclusion of farm workers and domestic workers from sort of the basic commitments of the New Deal as a, another example of sort of dividing the working class um, or Reconstruction and the efforts to divide um, emancipated slaves from white workers. Um, so this is a, a huge problem in American history, and you know, a, a real challenge. Um, I think that. Um, though our proposals actually do, could uh, work toward um, changing um, or helping with the problem, uh, because when you have working people organized around um, sort of economic interests, um, whether that be their interests as tenants or their interests as workers, um, that often helps uh, kind of focuses, uh, helps overcome uh, traditional racial divides and enables uh, sort of solidarity across um, divides of race and gender. Um, and especially if the organizations are organized in a way that are broad and inclusive um, along the lines that, you know, Ben was um, talking about earlier. That said, I think there's like a whole nother 
research agenda and project and um, in terms of thinking about how could law reshape political parties even more directly than what we're trying to do, which is create, you know, more organizations that can then in turn shape political parties. But there, I think when you think about like the debates in election law right now, you know, they're actually pushing in the opposite direction. How do we, um, a number of prominent scholars are urging um, kind of more power to party leaders, um, trying to kind of create more power among elites, I think we could be thinking really differently about how law could try to facilitate different kind of political parties. But that is really outside the scope of what this project is trying to do. Uh, it's kind of a schoolhouses of labor democracy or labor party, something like that I type of idea. So while I have you here, um, uh, uh, this paper was fascinating, but I have some questions that are, uh, are somewhat afield from it, um, because, but we have two of the nation's leading labor law experts, and now I get to ask you questions. And so I get to ask what I get to choose what they're about. And so this past year, to me, I I, I grew up inside public sector uh, uh, unions. Uh, my parents worked for public sector unions. And um, I just this seems to me to be the most interesting year in public sector unions in, at least in my lifetime. Um, uh, particularly for some of the profession, uh, uh, um, some specific uh, public sector unions. And so I just want to ask you each about uh, one of them. So for Kate, I want to ask you about teachers unions in 2020 and 2021. So coming into the pandemic, teacher unions were more powerful than they'd been in a while. Um, they had recently, in the fight inside the Democratic Party, they'd kind of defeated their charter school, or at least were had them on the ropes, at least their charter school opponents. Um, they'd convinced the, the, the leading candidate, now president, to appoint a teacher as secretary of education. Um, they, as you've written about quite memorably, they've written, they led these uh, red for ed protests, mass red for ed protests in country states that are not traditional union bastions. And they'd frankly kind of kick some butt in uh, strikes in Los Angeles and Chicago. So the teachers unions were kind of on a high. And on one level, the pandemic has shown exactly how powerful they are. So the research has shown that where uh, teachers unions are more dense and more powerful, um, uh, schools have reopened, uh, have been have been more reticent to reopen, even controlling for political party. So they've shown that they have they've kind of the influence, the ability to unlike other parts of the economy, other essential work types of the economy, they're able to stop um, uh, uh, put it, they're able to stop their workers from getting in danger. On the other hand, there's been some really severe pushback that comes from some untraditional places. So uh, you've seen, um, I mean, parents everywhere. You can just like go on Twitter and see parents like seemingly left-wingy type people like fulminating about teachers unions is like what, what's on Twitter every every two seconds. Uh, you, uh, you see uh, Andrew Yang, the leading candidate for mayor in New York City, has uh, blamed the teachers unions for the failure of schools to reopen. Um, and the CDC has now come down on reports saying that schools is really safe to reopen schools. So here's my question for you, Kate. Are teachers unions more powerful or less powerful than they were in 2019? I think it's too early for me to have a judgment on whether they're more powerful or less powerful. I mean, as you say, what happened in 2018 and 2019, thereabouts, these massive organizing among teachers in red states as well as blue states um, to really put the interests of public schools um, at, kind of at the forefront of the public debate and to win, you know, really substantial 
um, wage increases for teachers, but also improvements in education and addressing some of the problems um, of, of underfunding of public education was really quite phenomenal. Um, and um, that, I think, as you say, you know, strengthened teachers' unions because they really became a, f- a public force for um uh, for public education and, and for teachers' rights. The pandemic has posed extraordinary problems for workers and the, the health and safety risks to workers who were forced to work in industries like meatpacking and grocery stores and healthcare, non-union industries without sufficient uh, PPE without sufficient protective equipment, you know, is really was shameful and dangerous. And the teachers unions um, and the teachers collectively kind of refused to work in unsafe conditions. Um, the you think you're right that like the um, the national teachers unions and the national leadership of the unions um, did urge reopening on safe and safe. Uh, with with safe precaution with precautions, um, how that has played out in different districts um, has been mixed, um, and I think sort of there's an open question of what happens next and to what extent um, do the t- do teachers unions, as we move out of the pandemic, um, remain uh, a strong voice not only for teacher safety but also for public education and for children and I I'm, I'm I think it's likely that they will do that um, but I think you know we're, we're gonna um, we're all moving out of this health crisis together and it's uh, it's not exactly clear you know what what will happen in bargaining around the country in the next year or so yeah, it's fascinating uh, so Ben I want to I want to ask you over the summer um, you wrote uh, what I thought was a, a terrifically interesting piece about the um, role of unions and the uh, police unions and potential limits on them as part of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests over the summer. Um, And you argued uh, kind of unconventionally for you, um, uh, but in line with some of the BLM groups that that police unions should be stripped of some of the protections they want at the bargaining table, Um, that there should be some limits on either their bargaining power or on the kind of policy outcomes that resulted from there. Um, but what I'm wondering is, do you think police unions are different from other public sector unions other than that they're more successful? So it, surely police officers aren't the only ones in a public ish, a position of public trust, like they are, um, we leave our kids in public schools, we leave public workers in charge of big, powerful machines to do construction. Um, uh, how do you square your position that police unions wins at the bargaining table need to be limited with uh, a broader support for public sector unionization? Yeah, that's that's a very fair and difficult question. And um, I, I, I should say um, that at Harvard, at the Labor and Work Life Program, um, we are engaged in a um, ongoing project to try to answer it. Um, and I don't I don't want to uh, prejudge the results of that uh, of that project. Um, we should have a report out soon. I mean, w- what I will say is um that um, my view is that if there is clear evidence that collective bargaining, the right to collectively bargain is being abused or used in ways um, that are, that in this context, leading to racist killing, um, that we ought to curtail the right. Um, and, um, you know, the, um, the evidence seems to suggest um, that that's been going on. Um, and um, if that's the case, I think it probably makes sense to limit the ways in which uh, police unions can bargain over uh, disciplinary action related to the use of force uh, at, at a minimum. This doesn't mean 
um, uh, number one, eliminating police unions. Um, uh, police bargain over lots of things um, and um, probably ought to continue to have the right to do that. Um, uh, but when it comes to the use of force, uh, I think that that is a, um, a a different kind of question, and my my you know uh, belief is that it ought to be handled probably by legislation, not through uh, collective bargaining. Um, I think that the, there's a um, implicit in your suggestion in your question is also something quite important, which is um, the uh, critique of police unions is uh, can be and is used to undermine the rights of public sector unions generally and to, to your exchange with Kate, teachers unions uh, in particular. And um, part of the, the motivation for the project we're, we're doing now is to, is to figure out ways to responsibly recommend reforms to police unions that will help address the problem of, of racist violence and killing without undermining uh, the, the rights of public sector unions uh, more generally. And the, the last thing I'll say is just to, just to put some texture to this, um, you know, in, in, in 2020, I think every House Democrat, this goes to Sam's question too about political parties, every House Democrat voted for a bill that would have extend, extended public sector bargaining rights uh, across the country. Um, when with the increase in, in police violence and the events of the summer, uh, that bill got tanked. Um, and uh, so it's, it's the, in my view, uh, reasonable uh, worry about police unions that is interfering with the rights of public sector workers more generally. And so we have to attend to it. So can I quickly, quickly, just quickly follow up there, which is, do you, is it your position? I'm just trying to get it clear that the, the problems created by, with respect to police unions and their negotiations and that you, you identify in that post, is it that it reveals problems with, is it with, with, with the broader universe of public sector unionization or is it just a weird aberration? So that's like the the thing I can't I couldn't get my finger around or head head around is whether you thought this was a like revealed what happens when something goes too far a group is too powerful or something or alternately it's a really specific thing that you think is about police and not about other things because that second point I didn't quite understand. Um, so I, I mean, again the 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 broader work of to answer this question is ongoing and and um um i we can't wait but, to see it yeah right my, my my reaction is that um we we know there's a problem with respect to police unions or 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 and that is that collective bargaining is appears to be contributing this particular form of collective bargaining is contributing to an unacceptable outcome and when you see that you have to address it um, and I don't, I don't see it generalizing um, beyond beyond the the context of of use of force um, in the policing context. Well, that was super fascinating. I just want to thank you both, Kate and Ben, for coming on the pod. This was a great. I had a great time, and I learned so much. So, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us.